Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're privileged to have as our guest, U.S. House of Representatives member Ed Case, Democrat of Hawaii. Representative Case is involved in a number of bipartisan initiatives to improve the budget process and the long-term fiscal outlook. In Congress, Case serves on the House Appropriations and Natural Resources Committee, and he is co-chair of the Blue Dog Coalition. Joining me for today's discussion with Representative Case is Concord Coalition National Field Director Phil Smith. Representative Case, welcome to Facing the Future. Good morning. Aloha. It's great to be with you. Great to have you uh, on the show. Let me begin with a uh, statement I saw on your congressional website that really caught my attention. Uh, It says, quoting you, I believe that our federal budget should not be an aspirational exercise, but instead a document and agenda that comprehensively addresses our nation's needs and expenses in a fiscally sustainable way. We have urgent challenges from climate change to healthcare and beyond, and we need a full and difficult debate on how best to balance their cost with our ability and commitment to raise and allocate scarce resources. Now, I have to say, not all of your colleagues express themselves so well uh, on the subject and the hard choices. And so before we get into some of the initiatives that you've been involved in, I wonder if you could expand a bit on why fiscal responsibility has been such an important issue for you. Well, you know, I, 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 I think that fundamentally, um, I don't believe that government is, is, is in concept any different from a family budget or, or a business budget. And of course, I've run a family budget for many decades myself, and I have also uh, managed um, a number of businesses and, and had to deal with, with uh, the choices that are required by good, solid fiscal management to get costs and, and you know, revenues and expenses in line and to manage debt and to do it in a sustainable way so it doesn't catch up with you. And I I don't think government is fundamentally different. Government has different tools. Government has different approaches sometimes. Uh, And of course, government um, has, um, unfortunately or fortunately, looking at how you, um, you know, look at it, uh, has different uh, recourse in terms of debt. Uh, but that doesn't change the fundamentals uh, that um, if you operate a government uh, di- fundamentally differently from, from a family budget or a business budget, it does catch up with you. And, you know, we've got a whole line of uh, thought out there right now in this country that, that what I just said is not true. And that, in fact, governments can have their cake and eat it, too. And to that, I say, look around the world at examples of governments that have tried to have their cake and eat it, too. And it doesn't work too well. And I, you could go to you could go through any number of examples of that in in countries in you know, uh, Europe or South America. You have a current example going on in Turkey, for example. Um, so, you know, you, you can't escape the music at some point. And um, 
many of my colleagues are busy trying to escape the music in one way, shape, or form. And, and so um, I, I, I think we've gotten away from that. And I think it's, I think it's dangerous to our national security. And so that, that's fundamentally, um, you know, where I'm coming from. Um, I think that, and, and, and to the, to the point of uh, my, my quote that you cited there, um, I, I also don't think budgets are these, you know, stark, you know, uh, pieces of paper. They, they reflect public values and public policy and public judgments about where to allocate resources, where to allocate burdens, uh, wh wh where, to, where to try to solve um, the, the problems of our country, both short-term, mid-term, long-term, where to allocate the responsibilities for those. So these are policy judgments. Uh, they cannot be treated as kind of ancillary, you know, um, exercises at the end of the day for some kind of a troublesome exercise that you have to go through once you've decided what you want to do. That's not how it works for me. You know, you remind me, and I, I know Phil probably had the same thought when you were saying that, that our one of our favorite uh, field exercises is the the budget challenge principles and priorities in which people do just that. You know, they sit around in small groups. And make those choices because, you know, you're right. It's, it's really a matter of setting priorities and then how you make it uh, uh, all add up. Um, and I, now, I would say I would say I would say in that respect, I've, I've taken the budget uh, challenge or various forms of it because there are a number of budget challenges out there. And I and I send it periodically to my constituents and say, OK, you know, what, what do you think about the budget challenge? And And I think the interesting point to make there is that. So often, uh, these discussions on budgets uh, devolve into an overall policy debate about uh, the level of government spending, should it be higher or lower, or the level of government taxation, should it be higher or lower, or the level of government debt, should it be higher or lower. To me, that's not the point. The point is that at the end of the day, when you make your judgments about um, uh, revenues, expenses, and debt, that it adds up to a fiscally sustainable package. So, for example, sometimes I hear people say, "Well, you know, Representative Case, you know, you're so into the budget. That must mean that you're that you're a, a small government, small tax." you know, small debt guy. And that's not the case. And I'm just trying to get to a balance. And if the judgment is um, that we, if the judgment is that we need a larger government that is, that is financed by some level of taxation different from what we have today. Um, if that's the judgment, and if I agree with it, okay, I do. But if it's a small government, and you know, the revenue balance is different, that's okay, too. The point is, that whatever your whatever your judgments are on your level of income and expenses, um, recognizing that there are, are consequences uh, to all of those levels and to debt as well, that it add up to a fiscally sustainable uh, package. So you know, it's it, for, it again, it's not for it's not for me the end debate about the size and cost of government and allocation of revenues, but it is about that it be fiscally responsible. Yeah, that was one of the things that Paul Songus emphasized when uh, the Concord Coalition was founded 30 years ago this year, as a matter of fact, is that and, and I've been with the Concord Coalition since the beginning. And one of the um, you know, one of the things he used to say is we, we don't get into the debate over big government versus small government. It's the, the point is you have to pay for the size government that, that you want and, and, and make those trade offs. So. Um, we haven't really been doing that as a as a nation, as a government, as a as a people. 
Uh, you've been involved in several initiatives to at least try to corral things, if not uh, completely solve things all at once. I don't think there's any magic bullets. But earlier this year, you gave what's called a member day speech at the budget committee, uh, expressing your views about fiscal policy. And uh, I recommend that to anybody uh, to look on your website uh, uh, to, to look up the member day speech, because it, it just sort of lays out what the problems are and what some potential initiatives are out there that could take some steps. One of the things that you talked about is the Sustainable Budget Act that you've been involved in. And I wonder if you could sort of explain that. Who, who are you working on that with and what is the uh, what is its aim? Well, you know, let's start with the basic premise. And it's a very unfortunate and sad premise to state at the beginning. And that is that um, we, Congress, has been, and together with the administration, by the way, a series of administrations, because the last time that we actually, I think, had a fiscally sustainable budget was in 2000. So we're talking 22 years ago uh, during the Clinton presidency when we had, by the way, in a, in a, in a, in a divided government. So this was not a partisan issue. This was a, a, a consensus of government uh, that we needed uh, to, to um, have a balanced budget uh, with sustainable uh, debt over time. That was the last time we were really in pretty good fiscal condition and we had some discipline in our system. Um, and um, that um, since then, a succession of presidents of both parties and, and congresses of both parties have deviated from that for one way, shape or form. And so the, the sad uh, conclusion that I come to here is that Congress needs help. Uh, in in making these decisions. After all, the decisions are ours to make at the end of the day, the decisions as to levels of uh, federal spending and federal taxation and, and levels of debt are Congress's uh, decisions to make in our budget process and in our appropriations process and in, in our tax and revenue process. And, and, and so um, the fact of the matter is that we haven't been able to make those decisions uh, because we're stuck in this endless um, you know, cycle of, 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 of really one side, you know, wanting to, um, as I said in my testimony, feed the beast, which, which, which means, uh, you know, um, spend more money and, and uh, either borrow that money or chase taxes up to that, that level of spending or starve the beast, the other side, let's cut taxes, but, um, and, you know, presumably chase federal government spending down to the tax level or borrow. And in both cases, <clears throat> we've chosen to borrow which is why we have record levels of debt and deficit uh, today. And so the fact of the matter is that Congress has unfortunately lacked the fiscal discipline uh, to, to uh, provide for a fiscally uh, sustainable um, overall approach. And, and so we need help. Um, and the Sustainable Budget um, Act essentially says in so many words um, that um, we are going to uh, try to develop ex an external mechanism to take a look at the big picture, <clears throat> because the problem here is that many of these decisions are ad hoc isolated to one particular issue, um, you know, whether it be could be a very meritorious issue, for example, climate change. Um, but the but the but the, the debate occurs only in one small channel, how much military spending versus non-military versus a whole of government approach. How does this all fit together in terms of total revenues, total expenses and total debt and trends? And so, and so what we really need um, is um, some external help to take a look at that big picture and say, okay, fine, 
Um, here's the goal. The goal is a sustainable um, you know, level of debt over time. Uh, how do you allocate revenues and expenses? Here's how you get to it. Here is our recommendation. And uh, that recommendation is put to Congress and, and Congress has to go yes or no. No, no, you know, no, no tinkering away at the edges. It's a it's a it's a it's a OK, you got to take the medicine and the, and the theory. And this is not new stuff. I mean, we've tried this before. We've had fiscal commissions in the past for exactly the same reason. Simpson Bowles, Graham, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And. These um, commissions, I think, have been helpful to develop uh, the approach and have put the hard decisions to Congress that needed to be put to Congress. Congress, unfortunately, chose not to follow um, those decisions. But that doesn't mean that the concept was not a good concept. And so fundamentally, that's what the Sustainable Budget Act does is to, is to, is to come back and, and say, well, let's follow the same mechanism because there's, there's really no other way, apparently, that we can, that we can get to that place. Um, so um, that's that's it. I've got um, you know good solid um, you know fellow partners in Congress that that uh, you know believe believe as I do. We've got kind of a <laughs> a small but dedicated uh, core of uh, folks that that share my views on this in both the House and the Senate. Um, on the House side, uh, people like uh, Steve Womack uh, from from Arkansas, uh, you know Carolyn Bordeaux from from uh, you know uh, Georgia um, and and others and these are bipartisan by the way um, we we work with people that want to work with us on these things so that that's fundamentally who my fellow travelers are and there's a bill similar bill on the Senate side too that you've been working with absolutely we have counterparts in the Senate we have partners in the Senate as well um, and we also um, um, so so this is you know this is bipartisan bicameral uh, group uh, that that believe that are that we're on a physically unsustainable path, and we've got to get back to some level of physical sustainability, or we're we're really going to be in in a very historically dangerous um, area. We already are, uh, by the way. But on the on the trends that we're going on, and this is not me talking. This is the Congressional Budget Office, which is which is our independent uh, budget arm of Congress, uh, which issues reports. And I would encourage anybody that wants to kind of get into the weeds on these issues to simply look up cbo.gov, I think it is, and and um, search for the, the latest uh, CBO um, evaluation of the state of uh, finances in our country, which uh, paints a pretty bleak picture. Yeah, uh, not, none of this is classified information. It's all right out there in the open. That's no, it's, it's staring us in the face. We, we may not want to open the covers of that CBO report, uh, but um, there it is. Uh, them's the them's the facts, as they say. So, yes, that's um, fundamentally where we're going on that. All right. I've been dominating the questions here, so I'm going to turn it over to Phil Smith, our national field director. Thanks, Bob. Aloha, Congressman, and mahalo for being with us today on Facing the Future. Uh, you talk about sustainability, which is so vital when you look particularly at the long-term problems that we're facing and challenges. And I'm concerned about the future of Social Security and Medicare. We talk about that a lot at the Concord Coalition. Um, it's a generational issue. Uh, you know, we want for the kids, the grandkids, the keiki to have Social Security benefits like today's grandparents have it. But unfortunately, the current programs uh, will need some sort of changes. And uh, a lot of your colleagues, um, I would be somewhat critical of, and I would say they've signed up for the do nothing plan. Uh, you have not done that. You've actually put your name on some legislation. One, one particular piece of legislation uh, that I wanted to ask you about is the trust act. Uh, this is another bipartisan, uh, bi 
bicameral proposal uh, that you have uh, co-sponsored. And you would not do nothing uh, when it comes to the future of Social Security and Medicare. You would actually uh, try to make these programs sustainable for future generations. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Trust Act and the, the, the chances of that actually passing? Everything I just said about our national budget um, is true in spades in Social Security and Medicare. So think of Social Security and Medicare as a microcosm of of the national uh, budget. It's got the same um, it's got the same basic program: income, expenses, and and um, it doesn't have the luxury of debt. Uh, but um, it it um, what it's got what it's gone gotten by on over over decades of its existence is one of the best programs that was ever, um, you know, uh, um, um, provided for in our government. I think a wildly successful program on many fronts. Um, but it but it but it's been living on the fact that there have been more people paying in than than um, getting benefits uh, starting out um, in the in, in when Social Security started, it was I think the ratio was something like 16 people paying into one person with benefits. Now it's down to about three or two to one. Um, and the fact of the matter is that, that those getting benefits are, are, are living longer and, and the benefits, um, especially for Medicare, are, are more expensive. And so the, the calculation for Social Security and Medicare is is going into the negative here. Uh, and to make matters worse, um, back to the larger uh, comments, um, the money that um, was supposed to be saved up, so to speak, um, in Social Security and Medicare to provide for the time when you would need it for a different um, income expense uh, calculation has been borrowed to finance the rest of government. Um, so the rest of government actually owes Social Security and Medicare um, a whole bunch of money, which is part of the debt of the rest of government. So fundamentally, um, Medicare and Social Security are on a completely unsustainable path that's actually far more acute um, and far more immediate uh, than, than um, the harder to get your hands around kind of national uh, debt where you can actually theoretically borrow borrow without without limit until it catches up with you in a very graphic way, which it, it already is doing. So so we've got to balance Medicare and Social Security, same idea. And we've and that's that's tough. Uh, the, the the options that we have to face are tough options. There's no question about it. Do we do we, for example, have a higher level of Social Security um, taxation? Do we raise uh, the threshold after which you can no longer tax Social Security above where it is right now? So for example, uh, somebody that's uh, pay, you know making two hundred thousand dollars is paying the same level of Social Security as somebody that's making fifty million dollars. Um, I mean, is that fair anymore? Uh, should we change that um, on the on the expense side? So that's controversial. On the expense side, um, should we now raise the retirement age uh, so that um, you don't um, you know your 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 benefits start to kick in? Um, and that scares people, but you can actually pull this off by by not doing it for people that are in Social Security right now or anywhere close to Social Security. If you raise the retirement age for people that are in their 30s, um, you are going to fundamentally change the, the, the trajectory of um, the, the, the balance in Social Security and Medicare. So these options are out there. Um, they are no surprise. We've done this before. We, we, have, we have changed the formulas of Social Security and Medicare before to get them on a sustainable path. Um, but but we, we lack the political will thus far to do it. 
Um, that, and that's fundamentally the problem. And so same idea with the Trust Act. It's like, okay, well, if Congress, you can't do it yourself, um, then let's, let's set up um, a, an overall independent, nonpartisan, bipartisan um, group that will study it in, in detail and recommend back to Congress on how to return them to a sustainable path. And Congress, it's your decision at the end of the day, but it's a yes or no decision. Um, so do you want to save it or not? Everybody's got to take the medicine at the same time. That's fundamentally the Trust Act. So same idea as a Sustainable Budget Act, but far more targeted to a far more uh, immediate and and I think really far more acute um, uh, threat. Because with if we don't do this, um, we will we will see uh, Social Security benefits for existing beneficiaries reduced uh, in the very near future within the next decade. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition uh, National Field Director Phil Smith, and I are discussing U.S. fiscal policy with Representative Ed Case, Democrat of Hawaii. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition National Field Director Phil Smith, and I are discussing U.S. fiscal policy and the hard choices that lie ahead with Representative Ed Case, Democrat of Hawaii. Uh, Representative Case, in our last segment, we were talking about various ideas for the uh, long-term, trying to come to grips with our long-term fiscal challenges. We've got some short-term challenges that Congress needs to deal with before uh, leaving town before the end of the year. Some are uh, the routine business of government, such as the appropriations bills, and others are more long-term things uh, like a possible reconciliation bill that would deal with uh, bigger issues like prescription drugs or climate change or things like that. And uh, then we always have to worry about the economy and how that affects everything, and all eyes are on inflation. So um, with that smorgasbord, uh, let me <laughs> let me just sort of turn it over to you and say, uh, you know, I'd, and let you comment on those things. I know you're on the Appropriations Committee, so you may want to say something about that. And everybody's worried about inflation. So uh, take it away. Well, of course, we're, we are dealing with uh, very, very big picture, long term challenges. Uh, you know, we have already talked at length about um, you know, our federal budget, um, the sustainability of our federal budget, which which I don't view as a long term challenge. I view as a, an immediate challenge because um, it is the, the, the challenge in crisis is upon us. It's not like we you know, are talking about let's get ready for 15 years from now. We're, we're there. Uh, we yeah. have record high record high levels of debt, record high levels of debt to GDP, especially, which is a real danger sign here. So but we've talked about that enough. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, we have major challenges um, in our foreign policy. I, uh, being from Hawaii, come from the Indo-Pacific. Um, I believe deeply in the challenge of uh, China, the geopolitical uh, challenge that China presents uh, to us, um, and um, the, the, the necessity of holding together an, an international rules-based order that has, that has um, for the most part, generated peace and prosperity and stability for the better part of three generations. So that's something that I worry about and involve myself in uh, greatly. But um, aside from those, uh, those very uh, you know, small uh, big picture challenges, um, we, you're, as you already pointed out, we do have to fund federal government every year. And, and I'm on the House Appropriations uh, Committee. Uh, we 
passed out of our appropriations uh, committee um, all 12 of our appropriations bills for the fiscal year that's going to start on October 1st, um, and they should be on the floor of the House in the next a couple of weeks. Um, that committee is a, perhaps an example of how things can work. Um, it's actually a pretty darn good committee from a cordiality, respectful disagreement, um, agreement in, in many areas. So in some ways, it's a model for what we would like Congress to, uh, to look like. Um, however, it's going to be a slog to get through appropriations. Uh, we do have disagreements over areas such as, you know, defense versus non-defense and some of the social issues that always uh, uh, manage to manifest themselves in, in the appropriations uh, process. So that's that's definitely on our radar for the next couple of months. We also have to authorize our national defense effort um, every year. And that bill is called the National Defense Authorization Act or the NDAA. Uh, which is which is always a major bill every year. Uh, and we just passed that actually in the House um, last night by a very sizable uh, vote. So, um, you know, it was three quarters to one quarter or something like that. So, uh, again, a pretty some good thing, example. Some things get done. <laughs> some things get done. Um, however, uh, we do, um, as you already pointed out, have, uh, you know, major um, um, issues that, that are being um, addressed or not addressed in the reconciliation process, uh, climate change related, which I believe is a critical crisis and challenge for our country and our world. Um, um, inflation, of course, um, just um, a real mess um, all around, if I can be blunt about it, a, 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 a um, crashing together of, of many uh, inflation um, uh, drivers all together at once, uh, oversupply of, uh, you know, money in the economy, um, imbalance of supply and demand, supply chain uh, disruptions, uh, low interest rates, um, those add up to what we have today, um, war in Ukraine and the impact on energy prices. And, you know, each of these factors would, would drive some level of, of inflation, or at least inflationary pressures. But when you put them all together, um, you're going to have what we have today. And it's got going to be a very, very difficult uh, slog out of this. Um, you really have to take each of those areas and take them on and 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 uh, hope and believe that they are going to add up uh, to, to a much lower uh, level of inflation, and it's not going to be easy. So, you know, sometimes people look for a silver bullet and why can't Congress just do this and inflation will go away? And the fact of the matter is that's not how inflation works. And we don't have uh, the, the tools to take all of those on at once. Uh, um, and, you know, I don't believe in going back to the to the you know the Nixon um, you know Hail Mary of of price controls, and so you've got to you've got to work through it, and it's going to be very very difficult. I think we're making progress. I mean, um, it's painful to see interest rates go up for for some segments of our economy, and and by the way, this is a major issue for our national debt because interest increases uh, drive up national debt and debt payments, which are already crowding out actual. Um, non-debt payments in our in our federal budget, so it's a problem. But we got to do it. Uh, supply chain, we got to work our way through the supply chain issues. Um, uh, we are still exposed uh, from a, from a foreign disruption perspective, and and uh, are developing some better resilience in 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 energy out of necessity. Um, and so, you know, inflation is very much on our minds. I had one kind of weedy question. About reconciliation, um, all of the attention is on the Senate, which uh, <laughs> often happens, and uh, and specifically on Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer. And 
but what's going on in the House? <laughs> is it our separate negotiation going on there but among the Democratic factions, really, about uh, what goes into a final package? No, not really. And the reason for that is because um, we did pass a Build Back Better uh, version, um, and, and that was passed and sent to the Senate. And, and so um, the House has taken a position on, on Build Back Better and, and reconciliation, which is far different from what um, was originally contemplated um, in the House, or it's actually pretty close to what President uh, Biden had proposed. So major climate change, uh, prescription drug uh, package, um, um, other, other provisions. Um, and um, the action has been in the Senate. And so the, we can't do anything further until the Senate decides what, or, what if anything, um, it will do. And my sense is that if the Senate were to pass us back a reconciliation bill, we would simply accept it. I mean, that would be what the Senate decided. Now, Senator Manchin has reported this morning as, as having said that he's, he's really not going to go any further with it, um, at least uh, with some major parts of it, like climate change, which I think, are, I think is an unfortunate position, but we may well still get back uh, some provisions uh, such as, such as uh, prescription drug uh, price controls. Um, and I think the House will accept those if they come back. Phil. I had a question about COVID, Congressman. We spent a lot of money on the COVID emergency over the past uh, two or three years. And uh, one of the positive signs in the budget that you pointed out is that the deficit is actually down this year. Uh, but the reason it's down is because of these, you know, historically large emergency level deficits that we have. If you look out over the, the next decade or so, we actually return to emergency level deficits but without the emergency. <laughs> and so that concerned us, but it got to me thinking too, not only do we have a fiscal problem, but are we in a worse position for the next COVID, whatever that might be, if God forbid, if we have another healthcare emergency, uh, wouldn't we be better off to get our fiscal house in order in order to prepare for future emergencies? Absolutely. And, and, and I'm glad you brought up the, the statistic that's always talked talked about, uh, because I think it's deceptive. And, and I, I say this with respect to uh, the president and the administration. That's that's my own party. Uh, and you've got to be honest with people about what's actually going on. So when I hear uh, people trumpeting how we're making such a great, great progress on the fiscal deficit and the debt, because, you know, uh, it's far less than last year. As you pointed out, they don't add in the basic fact that last year was absolute record levels of uh, annual deficit because we borrowed all of that COVID money. So it's kind of like saying, you know, hey, you know, we're doing so great um, uh, against a benchmark that's a meaningless benchmark. The far better benchmark is where did we where did we stand this year versus pre-COVID? And the fact is that we have deteriorated substantially. Um, and, and so I, I think I think we do we do ourselves no no service uh, by 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 putting um, the message in a in a context that's frankly deceptive. Um, and it, 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 it hurts the credibility of both the administration and Congress uh, to to put out messages that are so easily punctured and so easily discredited. Um, you know, how do you believe the next message if you know damn well that that particular message is, 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 is a deceptive one? So uh, that, that's how I feel about it. Uh, I think that um, to your point, um, let's remember that we 
We, I think we did the right things, um, first of all, in our COVID emergency assistance. I think we would have been in terrible shape had we not um, come out with him. We can debate over whether, you know, the emergency assistance was too large or too small um, or went to the right places. We can have that debate. But the fact that we had the emergency assistance was critical uh, to, to, to this country making it through COVID, knock on wood, thus far. But it was all borrowed. Um, so let's put this in context. We borrowed in the last couple of years somewhere in the range of $6 trillion, borrowed it uh, to, to, to get ourselves through COVID. Now, the annual appropriations that I'm working on right now for the entirety of one fiscal year, one normal fiscal year, is at $1.6 trillion. So we borrowed the equivalent of three, maybe even four full fiscal years to get ourselves through COVID. Now, Take that in a family budget context. Let's say you have a family emergency. You borrow some money to pay yourself your, your, your income because it had a health catastrophe in the family. And so you missed out on one year of income and you borrowed that one year of income. Um, and you spend the next couple of years and then all of a sudden you have another family emergency, but you can't borrow anymore. Or at least it's you pay far more interest to borrow that money. So what are you better off doing during the interim, getting yourself back to a situation where you were before the first emergency or just kind of, you know, chalking it up um, and carrying that debt and not basically retiring the debt for that? This is basic stuff for a family or a business. I mean, in good times, you get yourself in good situations so that in bad times, you you can make it through. And, and so we're exposed right now if all we do is just go back to the well and, and continue a path that, that um, you know, to, to contemplate sustaining another $6 trillion of borrowing, um, the, the functional equivalent of a couple of fiscal years, again, within the next couple of years, or even within a decade, without actually getting back to a fiscally sustainable path, is, is to contemplate a very, very scary scenario. Congressman Case, thank you very much for uh, being so generous with your time this morning. Uh, Phil Smith, thank you for joining me. Uh, you've been listening to Facing the Future, our guest representative, Ed Case, Democrat of Hawaii. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, Tori Gorman joins me, and we're going to talk about some uh, action going on in Washington. And some of it is uh, flying below the radar screen. You know, one of the interesting things that uh, came out this week, we, we both thought it was uh, caught our attention, was a brand new report put out by the Pentagon that was required by Congress mm -hmm. in last year's uh, appropriations bill, I think. Mm -hmm. And it looks at money that the Pentagon is getting that they didn't necessarily request. What, what did that report find? Right. It's, it's, it's a really interesting new report. It, it was published in June, and it's actually received very little press attention. So I'm kind of surprised. Um, let me give you some, some background here. First, it was requested by Representative Elisa Slotkin. From, she's a Democrat from Michigan. And she chairs the House Homeland Security Subcommittee on Intelligence and Counterterrorism. And what she asked the Pentagon to do was to provide three pieces of information relating to the most recent uh, defense appropriation bills. Number one, identify programs and accounts that the Department of Defense sought to fully divest or request zero money, but Congress partially or wholly restored. The second request she had was, all right, let's identify those programs and accounts 
that Congress authorized or appropriated at levels in excess of 20 million over what the Department of Defense had requested. In other words, Congress gave them more than what, at least 20 million more than what the Department of Defense requested. And by the way, when you get done with that entire list, please explain to America how all those items in the first two buckets either do or do not meet the requirements in support of our national defense strategy. And uh, I thought the report was really unique because it provides sort of an official Defense Department record of how much Congress added in total to the defense-related appropriations bills and where the money went. Yeah, you know, there's kind of a cat and mouse game that sometimes goes on with the administration and the Congress over defense spending where the Pentagon will deliberately ask for things to be cut or not ask for increases, knowing darn well that there is support in Congress for adding those things. So they don't really need to request them. So they put in the request someplace mm-hmm. else. And uh, and then Congress goes ahead and funds those things anyway, even though the Defense Department says they wanted to cut them. Uh, is that does the report get at that sort of uh, legislative ledger domain? <laughs> so let me tell you what the report uncovered. So let's go back to bucket number one, where they where Congresswoman Slotkin said, you know, identify those accounts that DOD basically zeroed out or requested no money, but Congress funded anyway. The good news is that there wasn't anything in the fiscal 22 appropriations bills that fit into that bucket. So that's good news for the fiscal responsibility people out there like you and me. But in bucket number two, uh, the report found that Congress funded over 300 programs and activities in defense-related appropriation bills at amounts greater than 20 million above what the Department of Defense had requested. And those 300 programs and activities added an extra $58.6 billion to the defense-related appropriations bills last year. Okay. That's a, a, that's a, that's a lot that's of a money. Lot. Yeah, okay? that's a lot. That's when, when, when we're talking about, you know, right yeah. now, Congress is fighting over whether to extend the, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act health care premiums, the expanded health care premiums, you know, that's $45 billion over two years. Okay. Here, we, Congress added $58.6 billion in one year to a defense appropriations bill. So that, that, that sort of gives you an idea of, you know, priorities and, and what's going on here. That's also now, about the same amount of money they've approved for all of the military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Exactly. It's amazing. So now I will say, you know, some of the money, some of the overage in the 22 appropriations bills went to uh, weaponry for Ukraine. And it's really hard in this report to separate out, you know, what was for emergency aid for Ukraine versus what was just, you know, plus ups by by Congress. But a majority of the aid to Ukraine traveled on a separate bill. It wasn't combined in the uh, 22 appropriations bills. So, but it's it's interesting what this report found is that of that 58.6 billion, um, almost half, 44% went to uh, spending on operations and maintenance, but 30% of that money, about 17, nearly 18 billion went to procurement. Okay. That's weapons, ships, aircraft. In fact, there was at least $4 billion in unrequested warships in those, in those uh, 22 appropriations bills. So basically, Congress added 
<laughs> more warships than what the Department of Defense um, requested. Um, the the report also listed earmarks, you know, congressionally directed scorekeeping. There were 23 earmarks in the military construction VA appropriations bills that ac- contributed a billion dollars to the overall total. So, so I'm I, surprised they weren't more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, it's, uh, it's, let me go back to those operation, not operation, the, the shipbuilding, the weapons, ships, right. aircraft. I mean, those are really the jobs programs. Is that uh, uh, why the members of Congress are particularly I mean, they want to fund those things because they want they want the jobs in their in their congressional districts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, defense contractors got wise a couple of decades ago and they figured out that if they took a an airplane or a boat, a ship uh, or a weapon and they manufactured the components in a variety of different congressional districts, you know, they created automatic champions of preserving those programs. And oftentimes what happens, and you see it in in this latest appropriations bills, and you've seen it in prior ones, members of Congress will add more money to those programs than what the Department of Defense requests, all in the name of protecting or adding jobs to their congressional district. So there's a reason the F-35, you know, is made in over, you know, I, I think it, it's it's dozens, I think, of congressional districts have uh, defense contractors that contribute some component to the to the F-35, for example. So, um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, well, it's, now there was a there was a third element that uh, I think you're about to get to when I went into that, uh, mm-hmm. and this is a, this is really a, a a puzzling piece of of the report, um, talking about how this stuff supposedly fits into a defense strategy. What was that uh, third item? Yeah. So the last criteria in Congresswoman Slotkin's request is please explain how these items in the first two buckets do or do not meet requirements in support of the most recent national defense strategy. And basically what the Department of Defense says said in their report is we can't answer that question at this point in time. Now, whether it's because they, you know, the report was due on a specific date. And the Department of Defense hadn't gotten around to it yet, and they had to submit the report, or whether they don't have the information that they need. Maybe the information in the the report was too granular to compare with the national defense strategy. It, it the, the language was really hard to parse, but no doubt about it, there was a big, huge dodge at the end of this report in explaining how all of these plus ups either do or do not support the overall national defense strategy. Now, this is going to be an ongoing report. Is it this was not a one shot deal? Well, there has been another request included in the House version of the FY23 defense appropriations bill. Now, obviously, that bill needs to begin negotiated with the Senate and signed by the president, but it was included in last year's. It's just a report. So I would expect it to survive. Is there anything else going on? I mean, we know there's a heck of a lot going on. We're going to be talking about it. But but uh, uh, aside, is there any uh, legislation that's teed up for almost immediate action? Yeah, I think for, for people that are budget watchers um, and that are concerned about debt and deficits, the one thing I would put on your radar um, is 
legislation, it's often referred to honoring our pact. Um, that has to deal with the uh, service-connected illnesses and diseases uh, related to burn pits and veterans who were exposed to those toxic substances when they were stationed in places next to burn pits uh, during their military service. Um, that legislation is headed for the home stretch now. <clears throat> it's it's been around. Uh, it's it's circled the two chambers of commerce a couple of times as they've worked out some some glitches. Uh, but the the cost of that legislation is six hundred and eighty billion dollars over ten years. I mean, I think everybody supports uh, providing our our veterans with the the healthcare services that they need, especially with service connected illnesses. And and I think these burn pits definitely are. But I think there should have been a way for Congress to find a way to pay for that legislation. I mean, $680 billion over 10 years is a huge amount of money. Um, And that bill, I mean, has enormous bipartisan support uh, in both chambers. Um, It passed the House for the second time just recently. It's, It's making its way over to the Senate and it'll probably pass before the August recess. Um, if not, then they'll definitely pass it in September. So, I mean, this legislation will become law and it's going to add, you know, $680 billion to the deficit over 10 years. Um, it would have been nice to find a way to pay for it. Well, Troy, thank you for that uh, update from Washington. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I will be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.